and even as Scott first said, uh, turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. Many of us are like, I know this by heart. I know it in King James. I know it in NIV. I know it in NASB. I understand John 3, 16. But here's the thing. Do you? Do you understand the context? Do you understand who said it? Do you understand why it was said? Last week, we discussed this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we spent time looking at this altercation where Jesus not only read Nicodemus's mind, but he knew exactly what Nicodemus needed. And they spoke and they went back and forth. And now we're coming to this part of the conversation, possibly, that is, gonna, is something that so many of us are familiar with, primarily because for a lot of people, this is the gospel in one verse. This is what people will stand with their rainbow-colored afro at a sporting event with a sign where it says John 3.16. This is a very well-known verse. And as we tackle this, I want us as a congregation, as a people, to actually understand that there is a responsibility to respond to the initiator. And guess who the initiator is? It's not you or me. So let's read that verse again, and we're going to jump into it. For God so loved the world, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm so glad we're not covering that many verses today, <laughs> because there's so much that could be done just with this verse. But here's the first question I have for each of us, those of us who are attending this church that are consistent here, I have a question for you that maybe you've never wrestled with. Who said this verse? Because depending on what you've seen before, maybe what translation of the Bible that you read from, in some translations, this is read, isn't it? And when it's read, that means that this was Jesus's words. But in some of the translations, it's not red, it's black, which means that it was probably the author of the book or the letter who said this. And in the NIV and many other commentators would contend that the gospel writer's explanation, this verse, was not Jesus' words. This was John kind of paraphrasing many of the things that Jesus stood for and said. Now, there are arguments and disagreements that cause a lot of tension, just with this one verse alone. And some would say that because Christians can't always agree, that this is a contradiction. An antagonist, an antagonist to the faith may say something like this, look, you Christians, you can't even agree upon who said something. So why should I ever believe the things that you do agree upon? And that's a fair argument. And if the content in, content in which we were discussing today wasn't as important as it is, if it wasn't the very words of God, I would receive that argument. But see, the thing is, the Bible doesn't exist because you or I could have written it. We're not that smart. It exists because God's will is that mankind, his creation, would know him personally. And he could adopt people into the kingdom of God for those of us who would repent and turn from our sin 
not perfectly, but we would pursue Jesus. I've said this before, but the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible contradicts you and me. Because when we read it, we start to realize we're not that good without the Holy Spirit. We're not that good without Jesus' sacrifice. We are not good people without God intervening. And for a book that some want to argue about constantly, a book that antagonists will say, well, the Bible doesn't really matter. It's just a book. It's like so many other religious books. People sure decide to make it their life mission to argue against something they supposedly think is not that important. You guys ever notice that? Like, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but if you do, that doesn't upset me. But for some reason, when people believe in God, an antagonist will get very angry towards this. So the answer to who said this verse, I'm not going to leave you hanging, even though I kind of am. See, we have people on both sides of the debate. Was it Jesus who said it, or was it the author John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who said it? And there's a decent amount of reasons for either belief. But what doesn't matter regarding if Jesus said it or John the apostle said it is if it's the very words of God. Because we know that those, the things written in Scripture actually came from God. It were the very words of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Let me take you to another 316 real quick. 2 Timothy 316, where Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, and he says all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. It's useful for teaching, it's useful for rebuking and correcting. And check it training in righteousness. So did you know that when you came here this morning, you came to be trained, if you like it or not? We're going to train you on how to be righteous, not to be a better person, not to clean yourself up, not to try to make yourself look better and holier in front of other people, but in righteousness that God's already given to you. Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good I feel like I harp on this a lot, but based on the fact that this is not the norm, even in churches, I feel I have to. We believe the Bible. We believe this is the very words of God, and we'll argue about which translation's best, who copyrighted this, who copyrighted that, what about this word, but we believe that this comes from God, and we believe that these words don't make us a better person. We believe that obeying Jesus actually shows the world that our past adoption, meaning God has adopted us as sons and daughters of the God Most High, our past adoption is leading towards our future glorification. Do you know that when you die, when you stop breathing in this life, if you've been justified by Jesus, if you've become a Christian, if you've been saved, you stand before God glorified. A resurrected body, a, a perfect relationship with God. So there's something we're headed towards, but you won't be glorified till you stop breathing, just so you know. And we get to live out our purpose as we read this, but not just read it, we apply it to our lives. And as we do, we start to look more and more like Jesus. I was meeting with a young man this week and I asked, hey, as your pastor, as you've been attending this church, what is it that you need from us? And he said, the fact that you want me and everyone else to grow more into the likeness of Jesus, and I know that that's what you focus on, that's more than enough. 
Because we want to focus on people growing to look like Jesus. That's it. Well, what about this event? What about that? What? No, no, no. Everything we do goes through the filter of how does it help people look more like Jesus? That's the goal. And so for me, as we look at this word, as we believe that this is the very words of God, that's why I pray that more of us would understand this book and that ultimately through that we would start to think more biblically, not just quote verses at people, but actually do what this says. So based on that belief, based on the fact that this is God's very words, we need to understand that if Jesus said it, or John's paraphrased what Jesus said, we still believe that these are God's very words. So let's pick apart right now the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Let's see what God said in this verse. So I'm going to read it one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He starts with, for God so loved the world. Man, I love people that want to argue about semantics. And by love, I mean I want to half-baptize them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that won't show up on the podcast, but that's okay. And I've heard people want to argue about semantics all the time. Here's what I'm saying. People want to argue that what this verse says is that God so loved the elect that he gave his one and only son. But what does the text actually say? It doesn't say God only loves those who have a particular theology. It says he loves the world. The world. So look around. The world. Those who are broken. Those who are tore up. Those who understand that they can't do anything to earn God's love other than trust his only son. But he also loves those who shake their fist at him. He also loves those that want nothing to do with him. He even loves those that are religious that think they are earning their way to God. You know how I know this? Because they have breath in their lungs. And that is a grace. So as long as you have breath in your lungs and your heart is beating, you have an opportunity to repent. You have an opportunity to turn to God. But you know how I know that? Because of what the text actually says. I read it for myself. For God so loves the world that he gave. Huh. Isn't this God? Doesn't that just sound like God? For God so loved the world that he gave. Let's just stop right there. Doesn't God outgive all of us? Isn't God the example of generosity? Isn't God the one who constantly gives even though we don't deserve it? Hence, grace. And he gave. And you can't outgive him, but you can start to do what he did by giving away the things that are yours in your mind. And he gives, but he gives out of an abundance of his incomparable riches of grace, which Paul says in Ephesians 2. So when we look at God's love for the world, we don't look at the people. And I hope I'm not losing any of you in this. We don't look at the people like, well, they have good theology, so God loves them. But he doesn't love these people because, like, I don't know, 
they do bad stuff. We don't look at the people. We look at what Christ has already done. And we look at the sacrifice that Christ has made on behalf of the sin of the world. So he loved the world so much, he gave his one and only, his only begotten son. See, Jesus is the only son. It's not that God doesn't have other children. He has adopted children, sons and daughters who have been adopted into the kingdom, but the only one who came from God and is God? Jesus. That's it. And it's that Jesus, this only begotten son, this term makes us fixate our attention solely on Christ and what Christ has accomplished. See, Jesus isn't an important entity from God. He is God. You guys see the difference? Because there are some cults or religions that want to say that Jesus is a son of God or was a part of God. No, no, no. He's not an entity from God. He is God. Jesus is the per person, purpose, and point of our faith. See how I did all P's so you'd remember it? Jesus is the person, purpose, and point of our faith. So everything we do is to make much of Jesus. And when we grow more into his likeness, when we've been broken and God restores us, we make much of Jesus. So it is him who we believe. It is Jesus who we listen to. Not a set of ideas, not a denomination, nor a religion, but we believe in Jesus and his words and his works that justify us. It's all about Jesus, y'all. And it is this invitation by the initiator that you and I have the responsibility of responding to that changes the trajectory of our eternity. Think about that for a second. Maybe your trajectory of your eternity, maybe going from death to life was so long ago, you don't even remember how exciting it was. But think about the people around you. Think about your family members that you love. Do you believe that God can change the trajectory of their eternity? I do. I do. And it's not going to come through some really canned message that you've memorized. It's going to come through us begging God to make a difference in those who are around us and living in such a way that we don't give them an excuse to not follow Jesus. So we believe that Jesus, the gift of grace, the given to us because we don't deserve him, we think that's enough, right? And yet for a lot of us, we add to grace. You ever experience that where you go, well, you have to be saved, but you also have to do this? You also have to add, well, you better go to church. Well, you better give money. You better look this way. You don't need to add to grace. Grace is enough. And, and let, me, let, me, let me be real honest. We all deserve an eternity, all of us. So if you're a guest, this includes you. And if you've been here 50 years, this includes you. We all do not deserve communion with God. I don't mean the bread and the juice. I mean a relationship with God. We do not deserve this, and yet God gives us an invitation that can detour our destination because of how gracious he is. We get so bent out of shape because God allows people to perish without him. 
That's one of my favorite arguments. People are like, oh, I can't believe God would send people to hell. He doesn't send people to hell. He gives them what they want. But people get so bent out of shape about this, and we're so quick to judge God because he would give people not only what they deserve, but what they want. But shouldn't we praise him for the fact that he'd save any of us? It is only in Jesus. It is not through your devotion. It is not through your effort. But it is only through God's grace that we can be adopted into the kingdom of God. So shouldn't we praise the fact that he would adopt any of us? The kingdom of God, or eternal life, is the thing that we get. And eternal life is not about quantity of life. It is about quality of life. It's not about an eternity necessarily. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ for eternity. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. All right, that was one verse. We need to speed up. All right, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I almost feel like that's a better verse than 16. Anyone notice that? And that doesn't get as much play. There aren't anyone with weird hair-colored afros at John 3.17. I guarantee they won't have 3.18. But God did not send Jesus as an angel of wrath, as many people think that he was sent as. See, Jesus is God's kin. Jesus is the key, and Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That's who our Jesus is. He's God's kin, he's the key, and he's the king of the kingdom. And it is him who makes a way. Because Yahweh is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. See, saving the world was Jesus' objective. This was not just a reaction to sin. This was his objective. So when he came to earth and he lived among us, his objective was to honor the Father every moment of every day, which he did. He didn't just not do things, he didn't just not do things bad. He did everything right. And so his objective was to go to the cross for you and I. And the world tends to think Jesus came so people would go to hell. Rather than the king came to defeat hell because he arrived. And it was only through him that salvation is available because he came on a rescue mission. So have you realized that you've been rescued? Have you given praise to him because you have been rescued? I can guarantee you if you had a, a situation where you were drowning in water or you were falling off a building or you needed a kidney or something that was about to kill you and someone came and rescued you, you would be appreciative, wouldn't you? And yet Jesus gave us an eternity with God. Not because of anything you've done, not because you've earned it, just out of the incomparable riches of God's grace. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Let that sink in for a second. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes him is not condemned. Many don't realize that you and I, without Christ, stand guilty before God 
because of our track record. And you and I, we don't want God without the new birth. We don't want God without God intervening, church. So not only do we have a glasses half empty mentality when it comes to God saving any of us, but we also tend to think we are inherently good. And I'm here to tell you, you're not. Yeah. Amen. You're not. None of us are good without the Holy Spirit. None of us are good without God intervening. And when it comes to God saving any of us because we think we're inherently good, we don't think there is a problem that God came to solve. The good news that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to solve the eternal problem that no one is good without God intervening. See, the good of the good news, (laughs) don't miss this, the good of the good news is accentuated by how bad the bad news really is. None of us are good without God intervening. To ignore or refuse the testimony that Jesus is Savior, that he is Lord, that he is God, is to want to pay for our sins with our own life. You guys get that, right? If I don't want Jesus, I will pay for my sins myself. Even though Jesus already sacrificed his life on our behalf. So your sins are going to get paid for, and it's either going to be by you or by him. And I would rather have him pay for it. You and I do not deserve to be sons and daughters of God's. We do not deserve adoption. We do not deserve reconciliation. We do not deserve anything but an eternity without God who loves us. But God says, nah, you don't have to go out like that. And this happens, justification happens when we trust Jesus rather than just acknowledge that he exists. If your salvation in your mind is based on some past action, walking down an aisle, filling out a card, raising a hand, being baptized, none of that saves you because Jesus is the only one who saves. To believe in his name means to be the one who trusts listens to, obeys, and follows Jesus, not out of begrudging submission. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, I have to do this, so I'm going to go do it. But it is through grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort because God first loved us and we love him back by doing what he says. But for most of us, for most of us, It's not that we don't believe that he existed or acknowledge him as a historical figure, but we ignore his deity. We ignore the fact that he's as alive today as he was on the third day. And just like the Israelites in the desert, they were bitten by the snake. We talked a little bit about this last week. They were bitten by the snake while wandering in the desert. And the only antidote was to look to the one who was exalted, this statue that was on top of uh, in, being shown to everybody, the serpent that was on the statue on the top of a pole. And it was only through looking to this that these Israelites were cured. To not just acknowledge but to exercise reliance upon, church. You don't need a better you. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to love you more. You need to love Jesus. 
Because the person he turns you into is the person that God's created you to be. So you and I, we need a heart transplant. Let me, let me say it meaner. We need to die so Jesus can live in us. You need to be regenerated, you need to be renewed, you need to be restored, you need to be reconciled to a right relationship with your maker, creator, and sustainer, but it is only by looking at the exalted one and having reliance upon him that this happens. Do you believe that Jesus can change your heart? I could testify, I haven't asked if I could, so I'm not going to, but I could testify about people that have been in this church for decades that have had a heart transplant in the past eight to nine months. We can testify to the fact that God can take someone that's been doing something one way for a very long time and change their heart. Do you think, for those of you that are, that God can restore your marriage? Do you think that Jesus is enough to reconcile you with your children? Do you think that because of what God has done, do you trust that God can change you or your spouse or your child or your parents and even your own life? Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Why are you saying that we're not good? Because the Bible says you're not good. Here's the litmus test. Do you actually believe what John writes here? Do you actually believe this, church? Do you actually believe that people love darkness because their deeds are evil? Do you really agree that people will choose darkness rather than light based on their own actions? Do you think someone can will themselves to come into the light? Well, I'm just going to try harder. Do you think you can contribute to your spiritual birth, as we talked about last week? Because we see people daily who choose to make this life about themselves, about their stature, about their self-preservation, but unfortunately, that's not just outside of the church, that's inside the church as well. So why does mankind choose darkness over light? Because our deeds are evil. We do things that we'd rather you not know about. Anyone? Just, okay, me and Mike Miller, praise God. We do things that we'd rather have you not know about. We would not like you to know our motives, our urges, and our intentions. Because if others knew about what we urged for, if others knew about what our intentions were, if others knew what our motives were, it would be pretty obvious how evil and dark we all are without Christ. But here comes Jesus. And I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus came into our history, he came into our narrative, and he says, come follow me. Drop what you consider most important. And since your hands are empty, pick up your cross. Deny your priorities and your agenda and clothe yourselves with my righteousness. Be equipped, be empowered, be encouraged, and be led by my spirit and do the things that I have predetermined that my people will do. Deeds that are focused on God's glory rather 
than your own. Come, follow me, Jesus says. Verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. All right, just so you guys know, even though this starts with John 3.16, super popular verse, this passage is a we're going to make room in our pews next Sunday kind of passage because this is pointing out our depravity. This is pointing out the fact that you and I are bankrupt spiritually and morally. And this verse, I don't know if there's a more descriptive verse in the Bible for who I am without Jesus than this one. See, before I came to Christ, I would say I was a fairly good person. But what I really meant by that was I wanted everything to be fair. <laughs> and here's the thing, fairness ended in the garden. And one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to be like Robin Hood against bullies. I wanted those who did evil to get what they deserved. I wanted to be the prosecutor, the jury, and the executioner, all under the guise, if you will, of attempting to justify myself because I thought I was a fairly good person. But see, it's not good people who come into the kingdom. It's forgiven people who come into the kingdom. This past week, a pastor friend of mine, we were having lunch, and we meet like once a month, once every six weeks. His name's Jordan. And we were hanging out, and we we're having a conversation, we we're eating, having a great time, catching up about our families, encouraging one another, praying together. And then he brought up this fact that he, his daughter's friend in high school had these parents, and they are, uh, they are the, well, the husband is the most antagonistic atheist that Jordan, my pastor friend, has ever met. And so we're eating and everything, and I thought we were almost done. And he goes, hey, the reason I asked to have lunch with you, and I was like, oh, man. And he's like, well, I wanted to talk to you about my antagonistic atheistic friend. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was this guy. Let's go. And so he was telling me about the things that this guy would say. And he was trying to get my pastor friend to admit that the only reason he does good things is not because of God, but because he thinks that Jordan is a fairly good person inside. And so he wanted to take away the deity. He wanted to take away the idea that God is the one who actually allows us to do things that are fairly good for the glory of his name, not the glory of our name. And it seems that the goal of this atheist was to get this pastor to admit that, you know what, stop giving credit to God. Take credit for yourself. Sounds a little like Jesus and Satan doesn't it? And I don't know this atheist's main motives, but I was one, and I was pretty good at it. But when I was an atheist, I would attribute Christians' good deeds not to necessarily them being good, but because they wanted to earn God's love. And that is the gospel of spiritually dead people, that we have to do enough to earn God's love. They think if I do the golden rule well, God will love me more, which is not the case. God loves you because of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf right now perfectly in spite of you. So we were talking, and here's the weird thing, just so you know, when pastors talk with one another, we don't always go, hey, let's open up scripture and talk about it because sometimes it's kind of offensive 
because it's like, well, let me teach you scripture, pastor. You know, kind of that thing. Just being honest about that. But I was like, hey, what what does the Lord say in his text about what makes someone regenerate? What does it mean for someone to be saved? So I turned to Romans 10.9 on my phone. Romans 10.9, it said this. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a pretty simplistic verse to explain the actions that verify that one has been adopted into the kingdom of God. So I encourage my friend to ask this atheist to educate him on what he assumes that the pastor believes. Hey, why don't you tell me what you think I believe, atheist? Why don't you tell me what you think Christianity is about? Because if you realize it or not, and don't miss this, don't notice someone walking around, I want you to not miss this. Spiritually dead and antagonistic people rarely have good theology. I want you to think about that for a second. Spiritually dead and antagonistic people to the gospel rarely have a good understanding of who God is. And if so many people inside the church still act as if intellectual acceptance and some moral reform, cleaning yourself up, not doing some bad things, is all that's expected of those who claim Christ and represent him, how much more off could people outside of the church be? How much more off could their understanding of who God is be? But Paul says those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not that Jesus is a good teacher. Not that Jesus is a big personality. But Lord, Master, Boss, Alpha and Omega. A Lord is one you follow and obey. Not one you believe existed and pick and choose the opinions that you like. So I encourage Jordan to talk with his atheistic friend about the real Jesus. The one that that Jordan is personally in love with. Rather than the religious leader that other guys assume has tricked Jordan into believing in. But with that, I also reminded him that we stand on the resurrection of Jesus. That we take our stand on this, that Jesus isn't dead, that he's not forgotten, that he is alive, that he is moving, that the resurrection is where we can look back to as our anchor when the storms of doubt come. When culture wants to teach us something different, to persuade us towards something that is in conflict with God's very words, we look to the resurrection. Verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The light illuminates our need for a Savior and Lord. That's what the light does. It shows you your need. The light exposes our need for him. The light exposes that our deeds are wicked without him. It is those who have been captivated by the light and their need for Jesus has been illuminated by their deeds being exposed. All right. This isn't in my notes, but I need you to hear this. 
too many of us are not reading this on our own. And if all you do is expect to be in the Bible for, I don't know, an hour on a Sunday, how would that work out if you worked at a job where you only went to for an hour on Sunday? Well, we don't want to call our Christianity a job. Well, the Lord is our boss, and he did call us to follow him, and he did call us to love him and know him and chase after him and obey him. And how would we know how to obey him unless we read this? So I want to challenge us. Let's read this on our own. Not what the daily bread says by itself. Let's read this on our own. If we have the Holy Spirit, wow, God will actually show us things in his text. I bet you you learned something from this text that you didn't know today, and yet all of you had probably heard it before. And if you're like, oh man, I'm just, you know, I just don't know that much. I don't know if I could be, I could really read it on my own and understand, then here's what you do. You find someone that you trust that does understand this, and you guys have caffeine together. <laughs> and you read, and you talk, and you dialogue. That is my dream, not just for Church of the Valley, not just for the city of Santa Clara, but the world, that we would get into this, and we would do what it says. Amen and hallelujah. Because the more we read, absorb, process, and apply the very words of God to our lives, it won't make us a better person because that's not the point. It will make us a regenerate person because we've trusted Jesus and we're growing more into his likeness. Worship team, would you come on up? I'm going to read a story. Some of you have heard me share this story a long time ago before, but it applies. When the World Trade Center crumbled to the ground on the dreadful day of September 11th, 2001, anyone remember what they were doing this day? More than 3,000 people died, but a few of those who were buried beneath the rubble miraculously survived the toppling of the towers. Two of these individuals were Will Humano and John McLaughlin, a pair of Port Authority employees who responded to the attacks and were on the bottom floor when the South Tower began to fall. They raced to an elevator shaft and amazingly survived the 100-story collapse around them. They were buried under dozens of feet down in the midst of an array of rubble and trapped without water, breathing smoke-filled air, both Will and John had little hope of survival. Yet as they lay there, pinned under a mountain of debris, something was stirring in an accountant in Connecticut whom they had never met. Dave Carnes, who had spent 23 years in active duty in the Marine Corps, was watching the scene play out on television just like most of us. But more than allowing it to merely trouble him, he decided to do something about it. He went to his boss and told him he, he wouldn't be back for a while. Dave then went to the barber shop and, and got a high and tight haircut. Then he stopped by his home and put on military fatigues, hoping the uniform would allow him access into the blocked off area surrounding Ground Zero. He drove to Manhattan at speeds of 120 miles an hour, and he arrived by late afternoon. And while rescue workers were being called off the wreckage pile because of danger, Dave was able to stay because of his clout and credential that came with his military uniform. Finding another Marine nearby, the two men walked the pile together, seeking to save the lost 
After an hour of searching, they heard the faint sound of tapping pipes and yelling. Will and John had been trapped for nine hours by this time, completely incapable of freeing themselves. Yet in the midst of all the rubble, a marine who earlier in the morning had been working a spreadsheet in Connecticut found them. Of the 20 people who were pulled from the heaped-up remains of the World Trade Center, Will Humano and John McLaughlin were numbers 18 and 19, all because Dave Carnes took off his suit, put on his rescue fatigues, and stepped into the despair and darkness of Ground Zero. In the same way, but to an infinitely greater degree, God took off his royal robe. He stepped into our dark and depraved culture, and he served us. We were buried in the depths and rubble of our own foolishness with zero chance of pulling ourselves out of our own sin. We were without hope until the Holy One clothed himself in humanity and rescued us. And he became sin for us. I don't want us to miss out on the depth of what this passage means. It's that even though you don't deserve it, God did for you what you did not deserve, and he clothed you, and he rescued you, and we better live an appreciative life, not because you have to, because if you're not appreciative, you were probably never rescued. And I love you enough to tell you that. So we're going to worship and respond in song. We're going to respond in offering. We're going to, for those of you that came prepared to give, you can walk up here, you can drop your offering in these plates. You can take your census card, write your name on it, and drop it in this plate. If you're interested in community groups or anything on there, you can fill that out and drop it in this card and in the, in these receptacles. But my hope is that this is in response to an initiator who offered you the invitation of being a follower of his. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have on Sunday mornings to worship you. And if it starts at 9.30 or starts at 3 a.m., God, you deserve praise. And so, Lord, as we sing praises to your name, as we give of our offering, as we respond in praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God, we ask that this would be a time that you would speak to our souls. God, we thank you that we get to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.